Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, we are so excited to have a woman who is the daughter of sharecroppers. They fled the Jim Crow South when she was just three years old. And by the age of 26, she had earned three degrees, including a Ph.D. from UCLA. Dr. Shirley Weber represents parts of San Diego in the state assembly. She also chairs the Legislative Black Caucus and is not afraid to take on powerful interest groups, as she has shown time and again. Dr. Weber, welcome to The Breakdown. Well, it's good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I want to begin with some news. Uh, The governor uh, this afternoon announcing that beaches in Orange County are going to be shut down. Uh, He was not happy with all the crowds that showed up last weekend. Uh, San Diego is spared. The beaches there will uh, remain under the same rules. What are your thoughts about uh, that decision and, uh, you know, how other counties like yours have been responding to the social distancing and so on? Well, you know, the reality is, is what we're engaging right now is really hard. Everybody thought it would be like a couple of weeks. And then at the end of a couple of weeks, we'd all be back to where we were. I don't think people thoroughly understood just how um, how difficult this virus is to defeat and, and the challenges we face as we try to do that. So, you know, I give all the kudos to the governor. He has not wavered one bit in terms of what he believes we need to do. And when we look at the other states and we consider California being the largest state in the union, we have truly uh, uh, not say dodged a bullet, but we have done better than most folks thought we would. And um, so it's not easy. It requires discipline. Uh, People want to get out and do things and you have to resist those impulses to do it. The last thing we want to do is find ourselves in this situation after six weeks and then have to go out and come back in again. That would even be more devastating for people as well as businesses and those kinds of things. So, when you're that close to being where we want to be, uh, to open, to gradually begin to open up again, um, it's difficult to, to not be, to say to people, hey, yeah, you can do a little bit. No, because it's clear that if, if those who do a little bit will do a lot. And so that's our real concern. And so I have to celebrate the uh, governor for taking that hard stand and being real clear and real direct to the folks who are opening the beaches in other places that this is not something that we're going to tolerate. We have spent an enormous amount of money on fighting this virus. We have um, put kids' lives on hold in terms of schools. Um, People have almost lost some of their businesses and some have as a result of having to shut down. So we haven't made such an investment. It would be be tragic for us to blow it because somebody wants to sit in the sun. It's not that the beaches (laughs) are going anywhere. They will be there. They have been here forever and they will be here when we finish. 
Uh, and so people need to be patient. They're not folks who haven't seen the beach before. You know, sometimes you go places and people, I, I've traveled with people and they, they see the beach and they just go crazy because they live in, in middle Cal somewhere in, in the middle United States. Well, you know, Californians have seen beaches before. So take a deep breath, relax, and wait. <laughs> so you said you give kudos to the governor. There have been a couple of disagreements with the legislature. But I'm curious your take on this. Some people are framing this like, oh, he's trying to punish Orange County. He has gotten into some tussles with local governments there, like Huntington Beach over housing. Um, your city is obviously run by a Republican. Do you think any of this is being viewed by the governor through a partisan lens, or is it really about sort of responsibility at the local level and how individual officials are handling it? Well, you know, I think it, it's really difficult for, for local officials because they're confronted with their constituents every day, and they and some of them will want to get reelected. Uh, you know, we I understand that that is oftentimes that's the number one item on a person's agenda. Uh, someone told me when I ran for office, well, the first thing you do when you run for office is just try to get reelected. And I said, well, shouldn't you try to do something first? I mean, shouldn't you do something that warrants you um, uh, people wanting to get you reelected? But I know that being reelected, being popular is extremely important to a whole lot of local officials and to statewide officials as well. I mean, some of my greatest battles with my colleagues about what is right and what to do that's right is based on their fear that they won't get reelected. Hmm. Um, so I understand all that. But in the end, you know, you have to have some sense of responsibility. Uh, you have people's lives in your hand and you cannot give in to these things, especially when you have done something and you know you're so close to getting it done. And this governor has been clear about that. And in the end, when I have conversations with Republicans at the Capitol, uh, they're not biting at the bit to, uh, to get out. They're not saying the governor's done a terrible job, uh, that he, he could have done something better, blah, blah, blah. And if you ask most of them, say, well, what would you have done? Uh, they don't have an answer yeah. uh, as to what they would have done. So he's, got some, <laughs> he's done some bold things. Yeah. And uh, everybody's, you know, every, when people want to complain to me, well, I don't know, maybe he shouldn't have done this with the homeless. Maybe he shouldn't have done that. My response is always, what would you have done? Yeah. Tell me your plan. Yeah. That's and always, uh, yeah, it's always, it's always easy to stand back and uh, criticize. Exactly. It's yeah. easy to, chair to quarterback. Things, it's difficult to construct. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I want to ask you because the legislature has been uh, uh, suspended since March and uh, there are plans to come back in May. And there, you know, there are some concerns about whether it's safe to come back, especially some of the older members. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, date and you. I'm one but... of those. <laughs> <laughs> I am well, one of those. Okay? Yeah, okay. So you, you are. You, You'll you, date yourself. You outed yourself. So, hey, uh... I, I, I out myself every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you see me get up and walk. I have outed myself. It's all good. <laughs> so, how do you feel? I mean, do you share some of those concerns? I know Bill Quirk, you your know, colleague, uh, sent I a letter. I do share some of the concerns, and but you know, but always I say the same thing. You know, could I've done it better? Maybe sometimes I could have in certain areas. Um, was there any malicious intent? Probably not. Uh, it's hard to manage eighty people. It's hard to manage forty people in the Senate. When I talk to my friends in the Senate and with Tony Atkins, and I talk to Rendon, it's it's hard to manage, you know, A-type personalities, okay? Um, but I think, you know, because it came on us so quick, uh, each one, each, the Senate responded differently than the Assembly. Uh, we're not sure exactly where we need to be. This is something that um, we had not anticipated, obviously, and have never con confronted this issue before. So there's a lot of legal opinions about what we can and cannot do, and I'm hoping that during this time frame we will we will respond to it uh, and figure out exactly what we can and cannot do because this may not be the last time that we are put in a position where we can't, where we shouldn't travel. Uh, we're in a better position now, of course, because um, 
You know, most of us will travel to Sacramento next week. Uh, they have taken extraordinary measures to clean the place, to do this, to do that, to keep people from others. Our, all of our staff won't be there. Uh, and uh, and so as a result, you know, we're, we're learning a lot about it. But, um, I, you know, I try not to be cr too critical. As I tell most folks, I generally don't criticize a whole lot of things unless I feel I could do better. Okay? Yeah. Well, unless people who have responsibility <laughs> are dropping the ball. You got to save, save those criticisms up. Yeah. Well, well, let me just ask you, why is it that uh, the attorneys for the Assembly and the Senate seem to disagree about whether, for example, you can vote remotely? Uh, yeah. what, what, what's that about? Why are the, why are lawyer? You think the lawyers would be on the same page about that? <laughs> let me tell you this. I was married to a lawyer for 29 years. OK, <laughs> uh, and uh, he became a judge and then he passed away. OK, so I, I lived with a lawyer for a long time. And one thing you learn is that you can get five in the room and you get five different opinions. And each one will swear that they're right. And when a judge comes along, he will pick something from all five and make that the law. So, I mean, you know, I have, yeah, um, that's a good everybody point. tells their, 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 their vision of what they think is correct and not correct and what should hold up and what should not hold up. And so there's much opinion about it. There, there are things that we could have done differently, I believe, particularly in, in uh, informational hearings. Um, whether or not we can vote remotely. I know even the, the Congress is debating it. When I talk with my friends in Congress, they're, they're talking about, can we do a courier? Can we have a courier take our vote in and all those kinds of things? Because we've never confronted this before. You know, we um, I think in the early part of the country, obviously the issue of travel was difficult and it took forever for people to bring the votes in and all kinds of things. But we're in, a diff we're in an era now where we think we can do everything instantaneously and we haven't. And we have not thought about uh, what happens when you should not or could not travel. Um, you know, uh, what, what does that mean for us as a, as a, as a legislative body? And yeah, so, I mean, um, so there's this, there's a lot of angst around which direction to go. And my assumption is at some point, I think there's some folks working on some constitutional issues and some things that should go on the ballot and so forth and so on to make it clear that this can happen. But you can imagine, you can't envision what the world might be tomorrow. I've been in organizations where people have written their documents and says that you have to mail something. And everybody got mail, you know, <laughs> so they had changed documents to say you could fax it. I said, don't say fax because fax is going to get old, too. I said, just say transmit. Okay? <laughs> transmit. Um, you know, because because right. you write these things in your document thinking and, and, and interestingly enough, this last the mailing something has last almost thing like forever now. And all of a sudden now we realize that there are other ways that we can. Um, uh, that we can transmit information, uh, we can get signatures a certain way, all kinds of things. And so we have to be flexible enough to understand that. And so our Constitution has changed but has not changed a lot in terms of, of its structure, in terms of what it sees members as and what, what we're supposed to do and not do. And right. I think at some point that will this, this will force us to look at uh, the work that we do in a, in a, in a totally different way uh, that might create an opportunity for uh, voting when we're when we clearly cannot travel and cannot. Right. I mean, and this is something everyone's dealing with, right? I want to ask you before we go to the break, and we're going to get a lot more into your life. But you were a teacher for four decades. Um, your dad was very, you know, interested in schooling as a way to sort of have a, a leg up. This crisis has really unearthed inequities that many of us knew were there, but it has really exposed a lot of them um, around both who's catching this virus. We know black and brown and lower income communities are hurting. As a mom, I've been thinking a lot about the inequities, too, around education and like the kids that are already behind what's going to happen with them. I know it's a big conversation, but I'm just curious, like how you're thinking about this, especially um, 
you know, in the Black Caucus and more broadly as just an advocate for education? Well, you know, I, I don't know. We've um, I've been appointed to work with the superintendent, the state superintendent on on some type of program or bridge program to uh, to address the issue of these students who are already severely behind. And then we turn around and we take them out of school for six weeks. We put them on uh, this so-called distance learning that has not right. been uh, well organized uh, in across the state. And so these children will suffer a lot of loss, a lot of loss, okay? Uh, and, then, and then they can't rely upon the usual sources, which is the library, because they're all closed. So, um, so we're working on trying to figure something out because this is, this is extremely important. Uh, this is almost a year uh, out of a kid's life in terms of education. And when you do something like that, it could have a profound impact that would affect them for the rest of their academic career if they don't get the critical issues that they must get by third grade. If they're not reading, if they're not computing, those kinds of things by third grade, we, we can predict exactly where those students will be in the next five to 10 years. And it's not a pretty picture. All right. So well, we have to do something immediately to address that. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break right now. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with San Diego Assemblywoman Shirley Weber. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with uh, my pal, Marisa Lagos. And our guest today <laughs> represents San Diego in the State Assembly. She's Dr. Shirley Weber. And you have just an amazing personal story. Uh, we were reading the oral history you did with San Diego State a few years ago. And you were born, I know, in Hope, Arkansas in 1948. Your great-grandfather on your dad's side was a former slave. Your parents were sharecroppers. And we want to talk about you. But tell us first about your parents uh, and their relationship, how they met. Uh, and uh, it, it, was, it sounds like a real love story. 
you know, my, my parents are, were amazing uh, individuals. And uh, my father, I, he always tells these stories about how he was afraid to say hello to my mom. And he walked maybe five miles uh, in the direction of her house, see her on the porch, and he'd say hi and turn around and walk five miles back. That is sweet. But he, you know, my mother married someone else. She had a, her, her first husband who was very abusive. And she had two children by him. And um, and short order, she had two kids. They were one year apart each. And uh, and she left him because she was a, as strong as, if not stronger than I am as a woman. And despite all the, the issues of women and women can't do this and do that, my mother was not one of those people. And um, and so my father had come back in town and discovered that she was separated from her husband and started dating her. And then her husband got mad and went to her employer because she worked at one of the little hick stores in Ark in Hope and told him that he had fired my mother because uh, she did not have permission to work from him, okay? Hmm. And uh, wow. and the guy said, wow, okay, you're right, because I can't hire your wife if the husband is mad, so he fired my mother. Wow. Uh, and so here she was in a quandary, and my dad was there dating her, and he said, you know, hey, if you need help, I'll make sure you have the help you need, but you don't have to go back to him unless you want to. And so my mother didn't, and she ended up marrying my dad, and then it had six more kids, okay? So there are eight of us, and my father was the type of man who took her, his responsibility as a father very seriously. He also believed very strongly in education. He, um, he was denied an opportunity to go to school beyond the fifth or sixth grade. So he was semi-literate, uh, but he was smart, hardworking, and he knew that, the, that, that if he had done better, if he had had a chance to go to school, that he could fight the racism that he faced every day. Uh, my, he, he admired my mother because my mother went as far as the ninth grade and he thought she was the smartest woman he'd ever met. And he would tell us all, your mother's really smart and he respected her intelligence, uh, which is unusual sometimes during that yeah. era that respect the intelligence of a woman. But my father did and he had six daughters and he taught all of us that we had to go to school, we had to take care of ourselves, we had to work hard and all those kinds of things. And he never put a limit on us because we were women. And I was, when I went to UCLA, I found it very strange because these women were talking of the feminist movement was starting and they were talking about all these things that they couldn't do and, and that they had to find a husband and things like that that really kind of tripped me out. And I could not understand it because my father told me I could do anything. He never put limits on me. He did everything he could to take care of his eight children. He wanted to make sure that every last one of them graduated from high school. He had a job that did not give him benefits so that he could uh, take off and do things in the middle of the day. He worked for the steel mills in Los Angeles. And, but he took a half day's paid loss on every graduation of his eight children. He took, he went into, and anytime he went into the office to ask for time off, they would say, you must have a graduation. And he <laughs> said, I do. And so he went to every graduation of, of the eight of us from high school. He went to all of my nieces and nephews graduations from college and high school. He was a man who loved knowledge. And he told us every day, my father said to us, if you want to go to school, he said, I will drink muddy water and sleep on a hollow log to send you there. And he meant every <laughs> word of that. And so he was my greatest cheerleader. My mother was a very wonderful mother, moral mother who worked hard for all of her children. And she was a great, great companion to my dad. And, and uh, it was always funny because 
my dad had total faith in his mom, in my mom, and 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 my and he would he he come home on Fridays and give her his paycheck. That that was it. And he and my and others would say, you you give your wife your money. He said, listen, I didn't marry a fool. And if you married a fool, then you got a problem. He said, I have no idea. He said, I know exactly where my money is going. I know where my wife is in the middle of the day. I know what's going on. And he had total confidence. He said, I would never marry a woman that I can't trust. I mean, that was that was my dad. And uh, so I just was raising a family full of uh, there eight of us. We were poor. We ate beans. We almost were vegetarians. I, I realized that at some point in my life. I said, you know, we was probably close to being a vegetarian because there are a lot of beans and cabbage and greens and cornbread <laughs> every day. And um, But at the same time, we had tremendous love. And a father, my father spent all of his uh, vacation time, all of his extra time with his children and his family. Uh, so he was very family-oriented, and my mom was too. And, uh, and they did all they could to make us the kind of kids that we needed to be. And... Um, so with that in mind, you know, it was, it was wonderful and we were poor, but, but yeah. I knew that if anything happened to me, if I, if I needed something that my father would be there and he, he raised us all to be very strong as family, to have great relationships and those kinds of things. And so, you know, I, w- I was fortunate. I was fortunate to have been born in that family, raised in the projects in the Pueblos, um, my wait, wait, before you get there, before you get there, Dr. Weber, let me, I just want to remind our listeners um, that they are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. This is Marisa Lagos. I'm here with Scott Schaefer. Um, and yeah, and, and I, I want to ask you about that time in your life. You, you guys came to L.A. when you were three. It sounds like your father was essentially fleeing a potential lynching at the time. Yes, he was. And you guys... Yeah. Ended up, yeah, and which is, I think, in itself speaks a lot about the character you you were talking to. That he he wouldn't take anybody's, you know what, even at a time when he that could no, be a he dangerous did not. He did thing. Not. He did not. And my mother's um, mother had come earlier, so my dad came because he was had a fight at the at the at the way station, uh, and um, he refused to allow them to cheat him uh, out of his money because he knew what he had uh, done. He knew what he should be getting, and because he refused yeah. and fought back. They were determined to make him an example. And so wow. he had to be sneaked out of Arkansas in the middle of the night in a wagon, taken to Texarkana, and then brought to California. We came three and months later. Yeah. Three months later. Yeah. And your grandma, as you said, who's her her own, uh, I think, version of a wild soul, had already been oh, here. Yeah. But yeah. my <laughs> grandmother was me... a wild woman. <laughs> my mother's yeah. mother. Yeah. We could do a whole woman. show on her, I think. But what struck you me could, reading you your could. Or... She lived to be 96. She outlived all of her husbands, wow. all of her in laws, and all of her children. Yes. Whoa. Whoa. Well, what struck me reading your history is that, you know, you guys grew up at, at first you were in public housing until your father was able to buy a house um, with, I think, a $1,500 down payment in South Central L.A. But and you went to schools um, that were in impoverished areas and were almost exclusively black kids and teachers. And yet you didn't seem to feel that it really feels like you had not just the support at home, but in the community to really lift you up and 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 make education something that gave you a path. Can you just talk about that and like what some in, like individual teachers meant for that journey for you? Well, you know, the the unique thing was L.A. was not supposedly a segregated place, but it was. It was de facto segregation based on housing. And um, at that time when we came to California, uh, teachers were not allowed to teach any place other than in black schools if they were black. And they had recruited a number of educators from Mississippi and Alabama and all around. And and so when I went to Holmes Avenue Elementary School, it was basically majority African-American. And every teacher in the school was black. Every teacher was black. The only white person was a was a a um, the principal of the school, 
And there was one white guy who was a fourth grade teacher and he was LGBT and they would not let anyone gay teach anywhere other than black kids. Hmm. So the staff was totally um, uh, out of the South, understood racism immensely, uh, believed themselves that education was the path that they needed to take them where they wanted to go. And as a result, um, they, they taught that to us. There was no kid getting out of Mrs. Johnson's class in third grade who could not read. I mean, we were going to read or else we were going to burn one or the other because they <laughs> did battle you in those days. Um, we had, I had a teacher who taught me algebra. I, I ran into him when I was doing a lecture once at a conference about maybe 20, 25 years ago. And he said, he looked in the, he looked in, his, in the program book and he says, I bet this is that little smart Nash girl. And so sure enough, Mr. Hudson was sitting on the front row at a speech I was giving. And, um, he uh, he talked to me. He, he you know he said you know I taught you algebra in the fifth grade. He said you were that smart, and uh, and so we had order and structure and homework and parents were engaged and involved. Uh, and so it was it was it was a unique experience when I was in elementary school and even in junior high. Well, uh, a lot of the teachers were were strong. I had a teacher in, in seventh in eighth grade. I had a seventh grade teacher who came to the school who didn't know how to teach, and he wanted to be a movie star. This white guy, and, all, and so the whole seventh grade he didn't teach us anything. <laughs> When we got to the eighth grade, Mrs. Williams called our parents and said they did not get seventh grade. So we studied seventh grade the first half of the semester, and we did eighth grade the second half. She said, because they will be ready by the ninth grade. Wow. And we had homework every night and every holiday uh, that was there. And then she tested us in January. She said, you will learn seventh grade English. And we huh. did. Well, you so went they to... had an investment in us as children, tremendous yeah. investment. Yeah, and of course you went to school pre Prop 13, and uh, it was yes. a public school that was segregated. But obviously, you got a good education, and the teachers took great interest in you. There was a lot of enrichment classes and experiences that you had. When you think about that, and when you think about and look at the way schools are today, uh, especially you know in cities, sometimes uh, what do you what, what's your takeaway? What do you think? Well, you know, that was it was probably pre Prop. Prop 13, it was prior to that, but, but we also just, just, I think at, at the point that teachers cared so deeply for us, because most of, like I said, most of them had been victims of racism themselves coming out of the South. And so as a result, they basically spent a lot of their time and their own resources, making sure we had experiences. Also, we had great partners in, in Coca-Cola and Quaker Oats who were factories surrounding the school. And so that we went to every opera that there was, mm -hmm. Uh, as, as kids, we learned, we went to the opera, we went to Disneyland when it first opened. We went to, we had these kinds of museum experiences uh, uh, that we would go to all the time because we had great partners in the school. Um, and so our teachers felt not only did they need to teach us the subject matter, but they had to introduce us to the world. So that when we got out of that school, we were not afraid to go to places that we had never been before. Because they were gonna make sure that they gave us that level of exposure that would that would help us to understand what it was like to be in the real world and not isolate us in terms of being only in the black community. And um, and that was very helpful to all of us from all of my eight brothers and sisters. We all went to those same schools and we got tremendous exposure to the world uh, and things we did that we never would have had an opportunity to do as poor as we were living in the, in the, in the Pueblos. Yes. 
All right. We have like just a couple minutes left, so we don't even have time to go through your three degrees at UCLA. And <laughs> I know you 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 faced some real some racism there when you were getting your Ph.D. But skipping forward, I mean, you've been in the legislature for several years now. You've taken on um, some of really the most entrenched interests there, teachers unions at some point and the police unions. You passed um, a change to our use of force law. We just have a couple minutes left. But can you talk about whether you think, you know, the state needs to go even further to protect particularly brown and black communities um, around use of force and policing, because there's been that was a compromise bill. Yeah. Well, we have a long way to go to really be a state that, that we want to be. We're not where we used to be, but we surely have a ways to go. And, you know, one of the my frustration lies in the fact that I don't think people have enough courage to fight the battles that are there. Uh, everybody told me that there's no way I could pass 392 uh, in terms of use of force. Um, but I was persistent. And I knew that it was a whole lot easier to pass, to get 392 passed than to fight the battles that they fought in Selma. And that's always been my position. You know, these folks fought harder than I did, longer than I did. And, uh, and what I'm doing, I have resources and access to things and nobody's going to lynch me in the end. And as a result, I can fight these battles. And my father, my family did it. And so I just, I feel a sense of that I have to do this. I have to stand up for what is right and what is just. We're working now to try to reverse Prop 209. And uh, I, we have ACA 5, and we want to try to get that on the ballot. Why? Because we need it. People need an opportunity. And, and, and for long as I can remember, we've always hoped that we'd have a legislature that would represent the people. And now we have a legislature that is a reflection of the people, that when you look at the number of African-Americans, number of people, brown uh, individuals, API individuals, women in the legislature, we have a significant number that are there. They should not be afraid. They should have courage. We Dr. should Weber, fight these battles and get it done. We are so short on time. We, there are so many things we wanted to talk to you about, and we just are out of time. We know you've got to get to a caucus meeting. But before we let you go, your life story is so extraordinary, and I, I think it would be a great movie, a Hollywood movie. <laughs> And, and I'm wondering, who would you like to play you if that were to happen? God, I don't really know. I'm, because there's so many new people there now. Uh, and I love them all. I love all the women that were in the health. Uh, you know, one of them could easily play me. Uh, and, uh, and I'm I thinking Viola honest. Davis, personally. Yeah, Viola Davis. I mean, she, she would be great uh, playing me as well as some of the others. But, you know... Um, there are a lot of lot of women who fight, and, and I think I, I, I get my strength and my courage from all of those who fought, sometimes without any fanfare, without anybody knowing that they were fighting, and yet they kept opening doors and creating opportunities for me as a kid uh, and, uh, and doing little things that have amounted to huge things in my life. And I have been blessed by knowing so many people who loved me. Not only my family, but my neighbors, my church members, all those kinds of things. I've been out of Los Angeles now for 40, almost 50 years since I left Los Angeles to come to San Diego. And yet when I go to Los Angeles and I go to my church in Los Angeles, it's like I left yesterday. They still know who I am. They still remember me. And I'm still the little girl that they've sent to UCLA. And, well, and um, <laughs> so I'm, I've been blessed. I've been blessed. Well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of yourself with us today. Uh, that is San Diego Assemblywoman Shirley Weber. Dr. Weber, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks, thank Dr. you for the You guys have a great day and stay safe. All right. You too. You too. That, right, that does you. it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. We'll see you next time. Stay healthy, everybody. 
Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.